Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another edition of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to keep going over chapter 3, which again is monotheism and the hierarchy of divine beings in Second Temple Judaism. Continuing with this second section, we're going to start on what, well, just the section is the hierarchy of holiness in the heavenly temple. And so the temple we're talking about here is the, again, this is the second temple period. So we're talking about that second temple and kind of what it meant to the Jews and kind of what the hierarchy of divine beings has in relation to the temple and kind of what the views were of both Jews and later Christians when they came about. So, as usual, I'll start off with a couple quotes here. It says, Both Jewish and Christian sources present a continuum of divine beings that form a hierarchy, with God as the Most High and with a chief agent or vizier as second only to God, together with a retinue of other divine beings. The basis of this hierarchical view of divinity was undoubtedly the floor plan of the temple with outer courts open to all, but becoming holier and more restricted to entrance as the worshiper progressed towards the center, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. So you go on to say the celestial temple was envisioned as a series of hekelot, or concentric chambers, which occupy or symbolize various heavens. Therefore, the journey through with the various levels of heaven was described as a journey through increasingly holy rooms of the temple to the holiest of the chambers found at the very center, the Holy of Holies. God is enthroned in the Holy of Holies, and only those beings who approach or approximate His holiness can withstand His glory and presence. I guess first off, is that literally like what their built temple looked like as far as we know, or is that just kind of conjecture, or where do we get that from? Well, we in fact know what the uh, temple that Herod had built looked like. We have a very good idea what the first temple built by Solomon looked like. And it starts out this way. So if you begin with the uh, Temple of Herod and Second Temple Judaism, you walk in first to the court of the Gentiles. That's open to everybody. And all nations could come, didn't matter who you were. Beyond that, there was a barrier. It's called the Court of the Women. And there, Jewish women and Jewish men could enter. And, you know, they could mingle there, but you had to be Jewish to enter in, in beyond those gates. Beyond that gate was the holy place. I mean, if you get on, you can look at pictures of the temple, but there was a very large wall you had to go through, uh, had to go upstairs. Every time you went to one of these more restricted places, you went upstairs, okay? So you'd go up, say, five stairs, and then you would go to the holy place. And they had, in the holy place, they had a, a laver, that is, they had a large cauldron of water. They had a, an altar where sacrifices were made, and they had a very likely in here as well, a large menorah. And then you would go up more steps, and that would be to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And as you entered the Holy of Holies, the high priest then would approach, there's a veil. And the veil had pictures of cherubim on it, and you would pass through the veil to the Ark of the Covenant, or to the presence of God. Now, Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the Temple of Herod. It had been long gone by that time, but very likely they had other representations of deity in the Holy of Holies. 
So as you progress, you keep moving higher up and it becomes more and more restricted. So only the high priest on the Day of Atonement is admitted into the Holy of Holies. The Levites only are admitted into the holy place. This is the view that they had also of the heavens. The earthly temple was merely a mirror of the heavenly temple. And what they were doing was reflecting what was being done on earth as it was done in heaven. That was the very notion. And so they had this notion, and the heavens reflected exactly this kind of partitioning and access to God. So in lower heavens, you would have everybody in the world, and, and there would be whoremongers and adulterers and murderers and thieves and so forth. You know, we can talk about that as we get into these various pseudepigraphic works, but that's universally the view of heaven that they have. And every single time it is an entrance into heaven is entrance into the holy temple. And when you get to the top heaven, you've got God on his throne. But you have to be initiated into this by a being who leads you there through a number of ordinances that prepare you to be prepared to enter into God's presence. All right, and we as Mormons will find that kind of description similar to our own temples in a way. Obviously, it's different, but there is a lot of striking similarities of their view. Anyway, yeah, like you said, in the book you cite several pseudepigraphical uh, texts that, and again, pseudepigraphical texts are texts that are attributed to ancient authors, but were in fact not written by those authors. But the interest that we have is that they reflect what the viewpoint of the the people were during this time period. And so we're going to go over some of the texts that refer to this journey that you talk about. And so we can see what the viewpoint of a hierarchy of gods or a hierarchy in general was during this time period from the writings from this period. So the first one you cite is Third Enoch, which you just write this about it. it said in the Hebrew or Third Enoch, the heavens became compared to a hecalot or halls of the heavenly temple, which became more restricted and holier as one ascended with the Holy of Holies found in the highest heaven. So it's kind of what we just talked about, but when was this text written? And I don't know, again, in the book, you go quite into detail about what's in there, but kind of give a brief summary, if you would, about what significant things we should take away from this text. Third Enoch is a very significant text, probably written either in the second or third century AD. But it is written in Hebrew, and it reflects a much earlier understanding of the Jewish view of the heavens and the heavenly temple. Enoch is essentially the person who's being initiated into the heavens, and Enoch is essentially being deified through his journey. And it pictures the heavens as a heavenly temple, heavenly palace, if you will. And it's concentric circles. Heck a lot are actually, you think of the Pentagon where you, you go in and it's more and more protected as you go toward the center. In the very center, of course, is God. As Enoch goes through each heaven, he, in fact, at the gates, there are guardians of the gates, and he has to have the appropriate passport, if you will, to go beyond those. And so, again, we find this is modeled, on, again, on the remembrance, if you will, of the second temple that was built in Jerusalem. And so it's, Enoch is a very popular character in these kind of writings. Enoch is initiated. He is first taken in and often, you know, he's, he has to be appropriately dressed and he has to have the appropriate ordinances to move forward. So that's what we should take away from Third Enoch. Okay. And then, I mean, I guess you kind of write similar things about each of these that we take away as just reflecting back on that. But anyway, if there's anything unique. So 
The next one is The Testament of Levi, and that's written about 180 BC, apparently. And I just took the first sentence you say, an angel appears to Levi and ushers him through seven heavens. So again, it's this journey being led by someone. Yeah, you, you have an angel who appears. So what's happened, there's an investiture, a priestly investiture of Levi. Of course, Levi is a priest. He's the quintessential priest. And so what happens is he is being inducted into the fullest measure of priesthood. And so what happens is an angel appears to him, and he tells him about the seven heavens, and he he then tells him about the kinds of ordinances that he has to have in order to move forward. So if I just read this, it will begin to sound fairly familiar. So what happens is the angel comes, and then he says, I saw seven men in white clothing who were saying to me, Arise, put on the vestments of the priesthood, that would be the robes of the priesthood, the crown of righteousness, the oracle of understanding, the robe of truth, the breastplate of faith, the mitre on the head, and the apron for prophetic power. Each carried one of these and put them on me and said, From now on, be a priest. You are all and all your posterity. The first anointed me with holy oil and gave me a staff. The second washed me with pure water and fed me by hand with bread and holy wine and put on me a holy and glorious vestment. The third put on me something made of linen like an ephod, that's an apron, okay? The fourth place that ran me a girdle, which was like purple. The purple is a sign of kingship, not just being a priest. The fifth gave me a branch of olive wood. The sixth placed a wreath on my head. The seventh placed the priestly diadem on me and filled my hands with incense in order that I might serve as a priest of the Lord God. So he goes through these initial ordinances of washing and anointings and and clothing in the robes of the priesthood. And then he is qualified to proceed through the seven heavens, which is precisely what happens. The text says, The angel opened to me the gates of heaven, and I saw the holy temple and the Most High upon a throne of glory. And he said to me, Levi, I have given thee the blessings of the priesthood until I shall come and sojourn in the midst of Israel. Then the angel brought me to the earth and gave me a shield and a sword and said, Work vengeance on Shechem because of Dinah, and I will be with thee because the Lord hath sent me. And so basically what he's doing is telling us about this heavenly journey that he has and, you know, the kind of things that are requisite to be able to enter into the presence of God. The priestly investiture, by the way, reflects the investiture also in Leviticus. You can read about something similar there. Fragments of the Testament of Levi were found at Qumran. So we're dealing again with the, with the same kind of view that people at Qumran accepted. Whether it was, in fact, authored at Qumran, I think is quite unclear. I doubt that it was authored at Qumran, but at least it was respected as a text of authority at Qumran. Qumran, of course, is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. So what we're looking at is a Jewish text probably originally written in Hebrew and reflecting the understanding of going through the heavens. He talks about entering into the holy place. He talks about entering into the Holy of Holies. So it's very clear that in the Testament of Levi, his view of the temples is modeled after the temple at Jerusalem, and his journey reflects, again, this view of going through the heavens, and as as he passes through the heavens, they become more and more restricted, more and more holy, until he gets to the holiest place where um, only a person who holds the priesthood can enter, and that's made very clear to him. Okay, and then the next text you cite is Second Enoch. And you say a similar scene is presented in Second Enoch, and this is the Slavonic 
Enoch, which we talked about last time, and it was written about 70 AD. Anyway, in this one, similarly, Enoch ascends through seven heavens, and each successive heaven is more glorious, just like the other ones. Right. First, Enoch again, um, an angel appears to him. I mean, it's beginning to sound, you know, repetitive, but an angel appears to him, and he basically anoints and washes and clothes Enoch and tells him that he's then prepared to move through the heavens and to see. And so what happens at this point is Enoch is shown a vision of the creation of the world. So he sees, if you will, a, a council. He then sees the creation of the world, uh, and then he enters through the heavens and enters into God's presence. Now, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of other things that we could comment on, but sticking with the theme of, you know, this is really modeled again on the Temple of Jerusalem. And so the angel who appears to Enoch and takes him into the heavens is, he begins with Gabriel, and after he's anointed by Michael and becomes similar in appearance to the angels. And the angels then bring him knowledge by giving him 360 books that contains all the knowledge in the world. So, um, the, you know, the Lord himself tells Enoch the secrets of the universe, unknown even to the angels, tells about creation, and essentially the history of the world. And so Enoch has this very complete vision of the history of the world, sees what's going to happen. You know, this should begin to sound familiar again, but this time because a lot of, if you're thinking about uh, Enoch in the book of Moses, then you're beginning to get the idea. Um, and so, again, we have something that supports the thesis that they saw the heavens as, as modeled after the Temple of Jerusalem, but more accurately, the, the Temple of Jerusalem was modeled after their, their vision of what the heavens would be like if one were to be inducted into the heavens after having received um, holy ordinances being washed, anointed, and clothed, and then taken up through the various heavens to see God on his throne. Okay, and then the next one you highlight is the Apocalypse of Abraham. We talked a lot about this one. You just cite it briefly in this section, so just what's kind of one takeaway from, or one like something unique? So again, it's obviously the same thing. He gets a vision, though, of the seven heavens surrounded by concentric circles of lesser holiness. And then he's kind of like a priest that offers sacrifices on an altar to God before he himself ascends. Right. Abraham, in the Apocalypse of Abraham, has again a vision of the history of the world, beginning with the vision of the Divine Council. In fact, it says it calls it the Divine World Council. And he sees, again, the spirits in the preexistence who will come after him into the world. And then he's shown Adam and Eve and their, you know, what happens to them. Now, what is remarkable, again, about the Apocalypse of Abraham, and there are a lot of things that's well worth reading, is that the angel who comes to get him is called Yahweh. You could translate it Lord God, or you could translate it Yahweh Jehovah, or Yahweh Elohim, or you could just translate it as Yahweh is God, or you could translate it as Yahweh Elohim is God, something like that. So the remarkable thing is the angel who bears him into the heavens and Abraham, again, is deified as he enters into the heavens. And so the whole purpose is to essentially enter into the presence of the gods. Okay. And then the next one in the book you spent quite a bit of time on. So, I mean, again, we'll just go over briefly the main things. But you say that it's called The Ascension of Isaiah. And this is a Christian work that dates to the first or second century A.D., 
and what it does for us, again, since it's not actually written by Isaiah, obviously, but it provides a stunning glimpse into an early Christian view of the hierarchy of divine beings. There are a lot of things. In, I mean, again, an angel comes who inducts him into the heavens, which are, are modeled after the heavenly temple, after which the earthly temple has been modeled. And he's inducted into the heavens. And the most remarkable thing, in, in I mean, at one point, he falls to worship the angel who is inducting him into the heavens. And the angel says, get up. You're not supposed to worship me. Don't worship anyone until you get to the seventh heaven. And so when he gets to the seventh heaven, he sees in vision. First, he sees an angel who is called the Holy Spirit. And the angel says, worship this one. And so there is this angel who's preeminent among all the other angels, clearly has the status of an angel, and he worships him. And then he sees the Son of God, and the Son of God, he sees then God on his throne. And there's a clear hierarchy of authority. God is the highest, the Son of God or the Beloved is next in authority, and then next in authority is the Holy Spirit. And what's unique about this is that these are the only three who are worthy of worship. They're the only three that the angel will allow or instruct Isaiah to worship in his vision. It's also important because the angel tells Isaiah that he has a crown and a throne and a robe that is waiting for him in the seventh heaven. And so this, is, again, is an anticipation of the holy investiture with authority and receiving appropriate garments, if you will, in the seventh heaven. And then, again, Isaiah sees Abel. He sees kind of the history of the world. He sees the thrones that have been laid up. The next thing that's really important, though, is that he sees the sun descend back down the seven heavens to go to earth, and none of the seven heavens recognize him on his way down. He then sees a vision of the life of Christ, and that's calling Christ, causing the beloved one. It says, and after this I looked, and the angel who spoke to me and led me said, Understand, Isaiah, son of Amos, because for this purpose I was sent from the Lord. And I saw a woman of the family of David, the prophet, whose name was Mary, and she was a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, a carpenter, and he also was of the seed of the family of the righteous David in Bethlehem. And they were betrothed. And it goes on and shows him a vision of the life of Christ. And then Christ dies and is resurrected. And he ascends back up through the seven heavens. But this time, all of the angels recognize him and they worship him on his way up. And when he gets to the seventh heaven, the angels begin to worship the son or the beloved when he arrives at the seventh heaven. And he then takes his place at the right hand of God. Later on, we're going to talk a bit about the place of Psalm 110. This is a reflection of, of what is said in Psalm 110, that, you know, there's God, and then there's another God who takes his position at the right hand of God. In fact, um, let's just mention right now, Psalm 110 is the model for detailing the relationship between the Father and Son in early Christianity. It is quoted in virtually every single Christian work in the first 180 years. And it is quoted always in the same way and quoted always for the same reason that it refers to two divine beings. And it refers to one being at the right hand of God. And so the early Christians had a uniform vision that Christ was the right hand man. And in this one, he takes a throne at the right hand of the great and holy one, if you will. That's the best translation. Also calls him, this is the most high of the high ones. 
who dwells in the holy world, who rests among the holy ones. So when you're talking about a God, there's a most high God, and then there is a beloved or a righteous one who has been essentially placed at God's right hand. But there's also in this one a Holy Spirit who is worshipped and who is preeminent among the angels. All right. And then also in the ascension of Isaiah, it talks about, I guess, one question, not really a question, but just an observation. Is, is this the one where they like encounter a throne and then he like there's a throne in each heaven that represents God, but it's not God, and then he finally gets to God, and then God is on that throne? Right. There are thrones in each of the seven heavens, and he sees the thrones, but it appears that the thrones in the in the lower heavens are not inhabited. Only the throne in the highest heaven is inhabited. Kind of a symbol throughout. But he says, like, the glory of it made him want to worship it, just like this, even the symbol. But as he got higher, then he could actually see that one. I just Googled seven heavens and i got like this cool very early christian painting and it has like a little thing in the middle as they go up to all the heavens yeah what's interesting i mean for instance at one point his it says and there i saw enoch and all who were with him stripped of their robes of the flesh and i saw them in their robes of above and they were like the angels who stand there in great glory but they were not sitting on their thrones nor were their crowns of glory on them. And I asked the angel who was with me, how is it that they who have received their robes, but are not in their thrones, nor in their crowns? And he said, they do not receive the crowns and the thrones of glory. Nevertheless, they do see and know whose will be the thrones and whose will be the crowns until the beloved descends in the form in which you will see him descend. So what he's saying is, you have these thrones and you have the crown and robes of glory that will cover people because they will be in, in essence glorified. But that can't happen until the beloved or Jesus is born. And in fact, it refers to him. It refers to him as the Lord Christ. Okay, and so this is very clearly a Christian word. But until Christ is glorified and resurrected, the others can't enter into their exaltation either. Let me ask this, I guess, before we go on. So we've been talking about like a hierarchy of divine beings. So. In these ascension narratives, what, like, I'm not seeing the other, like, the council of gods or divine beings being reflected. How, where does that come into play here, or does it? Yeah, they are reflected because the divine beings are in the seventh heaven, and they participate in the priesthood ordinances and rituals. There's a holy choir that sings to God, but there are priests who minister to God in the ordinance of the priesthood continually before God in virtually all of these texts. And so the view is that the priests who, in order to be in God's presence, you have to be changed in glory so that you can be in his presence. And they've been changed into a glory that assimilates the, you know, or, or is like the glory of God in order to do that. And they take on essentially a greater light in every single, and, and they it actually uses the term light. They take on a greater degree of glory of light in each heaven as they ascend with the highest degree of glory of light being like that of God in the seventh heaven. Okay, so that kind of leads into the thing we want to talk about. So, yeah, like a lot of the Qumran texts seem to be tales of whoever the supposed story is about, showing them themselves ascending and becoming what we would call deified, basically, or receiving more glories through the, throughout their journey until they reach this high throne. So these aren't necessarily at least for some of the texts, they're not just a journey, they're actually someone becoming divine. And so that's very relevant in Mormonism, just because a lot of people say, like, oh, you think you can become like God 
more literally, and that's a heresy because nowhere in the Bible does it say that. But again, these texts point out, well, actually, the actual views that early Christians had, as well as this late Second Temple Judaism, is pretty much the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you've got to understand their idea of priesthood as a Levitical priesthood in performing sacrifices in the temple, and then only the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. And so we have, in many early Christian texts, we'll get into this later, Christ acts as the high priest. He's actually the high priest who gets to enter into God's presence. And so it's a reflection of their actual experience. And I would argue that a lot of these texts probably represent experiences that people actually had and wrote about them, but it was appropriate for them to write in the name of a great prophet or apostle so that they would receive authority because it was blasphemy even in their own culture to make these kind of claims. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. But... Oh, that's fine, yeah. Okay, and then the next is the Odes of Solomon, and this is an early Jewish Christian hymnal, probably written in Antioch from in sometime, sometime around 100 AD. Anyway, it reflects a similar view that is expressed in the Dead Sea Scrolls and has significant contact with what we just talked about, the Ascension of Isaiah. And the Odes and the Ascension both vividly demonstrate the influence on Christianity of the Jewish view of the hierarchical heavens and the hierarchy of authority among the heavenly beings who inhabit them. The interesting thing about the Odes of Solomon, they're written in Syriac. They were clearly written in probably Damascus, about 90 AD. Therefore, they're probably essentially concurrent with the writing of the Gospel of John and Revelation. And so the person writing the Odes says, in fact, he's a priest. He's probably a Jewish convert from Qumran, the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls again, to Christianity. He views himself as a priest. It's unclear whether this was something that was widely known at first, but the Odes became very popular by the mid-2nd century of Christianity, and they're actually recognized essentially as scripture in Orthodox churches. They read the Odes as, as scripture, and they're beautiful. I mean, they're written in poetry, and so it takes a bit of reading and understanding the themes that are being referred to and the allusions and so forth in the poetry to understand what they're talking about. But you know, to just break the odes down again, it's very clear that there is a hierarchy in the heavens. There's a point in which the writer of the odes actually goes into the heavens and sees God. But the odes are all about probably an early Christian baptismal ceremony. Now, you've got to understand the early Christian baptismal ceremony. After a year of being a Christian, there was a second baptism. And what would happen is the initiate would go into, if you've been to Italy, you see these, um, for instance, in Florence, where you've got a room that you go into before entering into the cathedral. And then what they would do is they would go into this anteroom and they would take off their clothes and be told that they were like Adam and Eve because they were naked. They would then proceed essentially naked to the baptismal font. Now, they probably had on a loincloth or something, but they would go and, and be washed in the baptismal font. When they came out, they would be anointed. And then they would be given a garment, a robe of some sort, something they were told that they were supposed to wear always. And then they would become and represent Adam and Eve in their journey. And so they would begin a course of instruction, culminating, if you will, in then receiving the, the sacrament again for the purpose of then being allowed into God's presence. The Odes of Solomon are written reflecting this ritual, this ritual, again, that should sound fairly familiar. And they're written about this type of uh, set of ordinances, if you will, for the early Christians. The next one you talk about is the actual book of Revelation. And you say the same things of ascension and investiture appear in the book of Revelation. 
which states repeatedly that the name of God is written on the foreheads of the saints who become priests officiating in the heavenly temple. Quote is, He who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and my own new name. And that's from Revelation chapter 3. Yeah, and so what's happening is the Christian is essentially being made like the high priest, the high priest wore a, a mitre or a crown on his head that had the name of Yahweh written on it. And so what's happening is the, God is writing his name. It's like putting a brand on somebody. You, you belong to me now. And there are numerous places in Revelation, of course, where there's an entire community that is being transformed into divine beings to join the divine council in songs of praise and worship alongside angels and divine beings in the temple. You know, I go through all these in my book, but I think it would be rather tedious to do so. Here, it's enough to say, go read Revelation and notice these themes, see what's really going on. There are a number of visions, and, and certainly what is very interesting is that not only does God sit on a throne, but the 24 elders are given thrones. And so, you know, the notion is, again, one of royal and divine investiture with essentially deification being the goal of the Christian because they are allowed to sit on a, on a divine throne, the very place that God sits. And this is very significant. I mean, it's very powerful symbology in this world in, in which this was written. Let's just kind of juxtapose into the next thing here. So you talk about Justin Martyr, and Justin Martyr, again, is kind of an early Christian apologist, and he's lived back in like the second century AD. But what he is famous for is being like an interpreter of the theory of what's called the Logos. And again, you'll, you'll recognize like, you know, in the beginning of John, the book, the Gospel of John, talks about Christ being the Word, and the Word became God, and the Word was God. So this Word now is referred to as the logos or this this that's what they that's what that word is in greek what does justin martyr have to say about these subjects or why did you bring him in here justin martyr is very important he really is among the very first of the christian philosophers he is steeped in he knows plato very well he's very obviously educated he's in the greek world and what is significant is, again, Justin Martyr refers to the Psalm 110 to explain the relationship between God. In one of his dialogues, he's actually addressing a Jew, Trifo, and doing his best to show him that the Jewish beliefs in God are the same as the Christian beliefs in God. And what is significant about that is he, you know, he refers to Psalm 110, and then he talks about a God who, who must be distinct from God because he's a also called God and is at his right hand. That means that he has the name Lord given to him. He has the divine name. More significantly, twice Justin Martyr refers to the Logos or Christ as a Deuteros Theos. That is, that is, he's a second God. Now, the notion of talking about a second God and saying, look, now, Justin Martyr is Greek. He doesn't have the same sensibilities as a first century Jew, but he's talking to a Jew at the end of the second century, essentially. And he seems to believe that the way he is describing God is exactly how a Jew would accept the description of God in that era. Okay, and then, so he just explains to the Jew kind of this idea of there being another God, and that's why we're putting it forth, just because, again, Christians are like, oh no, there's clearly, I don't know, again, I brought this up before, and you say this is modalism, which is not true, but, and I know we'll talk about this later, as far as Trinity is concerned, but in general Christianity, 
don't they believe that all three gods are basically one being not or different mode not modes like modalism but like different i don't know it's every like evangelical i've talked to or someone of not our faith they believe that there is literally only one god even though there's father son and holy ghost it's difficult to talk to people when they both affirm and deny in the same breath what they're asserting and so if you assert that there's only one god it, it, of course, always comes down to how do you parse the notion of what is one God and what is the notion of what is three persons? What is a person? And what is one? Because obviously one doesn't equal three, and so you've got to do some kind of a mental gymnastic to make sense of how those go together. And there is, you know, depending on who we're talking about, there are a lot of different views. And so it's extremely important that as we talk about these views, we don't you know, look, I think that talking with people that you, you meet generally who don't have a background in theology, and I know, you know, we do this with, with Mormons. I remember that Bill Maher went out on the street and talked with Mormons in his religious, and, you know, it's like, well, that's, it's just kind of ridiculous. If you're going to address an issue, you address those who are best articulating it and who best understand the issues that are involved and can address it. So that you're not just uh, just addressing a straw man or, you know, engaging in some kind of an ad hominem because the person you're talking to, it's like if you talk to a Mormon generally, depending on who you're talking to, you're going to get the same kind of vague understanding of, of what really is believed. And you can't really take it at face value because the answer is, you know, we don't have a trained clergy and we really can't tell you. And even if you do have a trained clergy, there are going to be a lot of different views. So it's very important, I think, to be charitable to others in their in their beliefs and the expression of their beliefs. And when we get into discussing, for instance, what Augustine believed about the Trinity is not what Thomas Aquinas believed about the Trinity, and certainly is not what Anselm believed about the Trinity. So we have to take each of them kind of on their own merits as we discuss them. Okay. Well, my point was just that that's significant that Justin Martyr was teaching that there was another God. Yeah, what is most interesting to me is that he actually used deutrosteos, um, that's Greek for a second god, and he doesn't seem to think that there's any problem because it's that's not going to violate in any way Jewish monotheism as he understands it. And and so it's interesting looking at how he understood the one god. And again, you, the easy way of saying this is they all believed in a most high god, and that god was properly god. And they have nevertheless divine beings that surround them who share fully in the glory, in the divine glory of the one god. They become God in every sense that the one God is, but the one God is always preeminent in terms of honor and the praise that is given to him. And so the notion of monotheism that's at issue does not preclude other divine beings, even other divine beings who are equal to the one God in, in every respect with respect to their divinity. What it precludes is another divine being who is revered and honored in the same way and who isn't recognized as essentially the ultimate authority. And it's like, a, you know, it's kind of like being a king in, in this sense. Okay. Well, and that's kind of transitions into what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this. So Jacob's going to take the lead on this, but we're going to talk about strict monotheism in Second Temple Judaism. So some people assert that, and this is an assessment of the argument. So Jacob, if you want to introduce that, and then we'll talk about that. So again, strict monotheism is the belief that, you know, there was only one God and not that there was one god that was more powerful than other gods that were around or a possibility of there being a, a god and then another sort of god underneath him just you know one god that's strict monotheism 
And just a, a quote from the book here, that there are competent scholars on the literature of Second Temple Judaism who maintain that Jews during the Second Temple period monolithically adopted a strict monotheism that defined God as unique in terms of the ontological gulf inherent in the creator-slash-creature dichotomy. First of all, what evidence do they bring up, and then what are the issues with it? The notion is, is that by the time we get to Second Isaiah, there's a sharp distinction be- drawn between God, who is the creator of everything that there is, and those who are not creators. And so this carries on, and this becomes the way of understanding monotheism. God is God alone. There's no God beside him. You know, this type of language that we've already discussed, which doesn't necessarily mean I don't believe in other gods. It it means that this God is preeminent, at least for me. And so Richard Balcom is saying that by the time we get to – now, who is Richard Balcom? Richard Balcom is is a fine scholar. He was professor of New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, until 2007, when I believe he retired. And so what I'm doing is trying to find somebody who's a recognized and respected scholar who is a New Testament scholar talking about this view that all, in his view, essentially all Jews and all Christians adopted a very strict view of monotheism that is entailed in what I have called metaphysical monotheism based upon the ontological gulf of the creator-creature distinction. And he comes up with this remarkable formula of a way of expressing this. He looks at texts where he claims essentially that the Shema, you know, the Lord our God is one. He takes that and looks at the way that it is used, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, where it asserts there is but one God, the Father, and there is but one Lord, the Son. And he's saying that this is a reference to the Shema that there's just one God. And what it means is is that Christ has now been included into the identity of the one God. And he says, what is definitive of God is not who God is, but what God is. God is a creator and the only kind of his being. He's the only uncreated being in the entire universe. And Jesus is on that side of the divide in the identity of this one single being. And so what he's doing is attempting to do give us some kind of an understandable formula that he believes reflects his and includes his exegesis of the scriptures. He quotes several scriptures where, you know, they're quoting Isaiah, for instance, and instead of having Yahweh, where Yahweh would have be included in the text, instead they refer that to Jesus. The most prominent, of course, is in Philippians, where every knee shall bow and, and every tongue confess. That's a quotation from Isaiah. And instead of being to Yahweh, it is to Jesus. And so he's saying, essentially, Jesus is being included in the identity of Yahweh here. Now, it, it takes a while to go through these. His, uh, his exegesis is faulty on many levels, not the least of which is that he simply fails to recognize that what's occurring is the granting of uh, an honor by giving the name of the patron to the client in an honor and shame society. And what's happening is the conferral of a name. The mere fact that you have the name Osler and that I have the name Osler doesn't mean that we're both just one single identity. Now, what he's asserting is is that God has to be sui generis. There can't be anything else like God because there's only one uncreated being. So let's make this assertion a bit more concrete. I'm going to say, you know, there was only one Osler ever born. And this Osler is the unique Osler, but Jacob Osler and Blake Osler are both included in the identity of this one Osler. That's the logical equivalent of what he's saying. 
I conclude that Baucom's exegesis is, is compounding really bad exegesis with incredibly bad logic. And in my book, I go through that. I want to emphasize that I respect Baucom because he's doing the best he can to try to make sense of the doctrinal evidences, but it's very clear to me that what he's actually trying to do is trying to preserve the view of God that he has, and as a Christian who accepts the Trinity and the later views that developed only after Nicaea. And he's trying to say that that I can read this back into the New Testament and that it makes some sense of, of what we're looking at. But the fact is, it makes neither sense nor does it explain the data that we're looking at in the scriptures. All right. And um, some of the things that you bring up was why Balcom position is not sustainable. I mean, obviously, there's references, uh, especially in the Old Testament, but in, in the, or especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, as we've discussed, like sons of God or ye are gods, or children of God, or even Jesus as the firstborn son. How does he even try and reconcile these type of things, and and why doesn't it work? He calls these vestigial beliefs that are left over from the Old Testament, where there is this kind of genetic relationship. But he claims that by the time of early Christianity, these vestigial notions of God had, had basically been transcended and surpassed by something far better. But the notion of a firstborn son and sons of God and children of God and the Son of God are the dominant images throughout the New Testament, especially of the relation of the Father to the Son. And so, you know, his argument is just not going to hold water. It's like he's essentially missing the entire forest because of the trees, as I see it. Now, again, you know, Balcom is a good scholar and a bright guy, and I don't mean to make it sound so easy to decimate what he's saying. But it's just not going to hold water. What he's actually arguing is that God is a different kind of thing than we are. He's a different species, if you will. The species differentiation that he wants to make is that God is his own kind of species. And there's only one being that is a member of this species. That's why I use the analogy, you know, there was only one Osler ever born. And Jacob Osler was born and Blake Osler was born. But because they both have the same name, it means there's only one Osler. I don't know how you make sense of that, but it's an exact analog of the kind of thing he's arguing with respect to the relationship between the Son and the Father. Okay. And, I mean, he's definitely not alone in his belief that God is a different species than humanity. In fact, that's one of the the big distinctions that Mormon has, is that we believe that we're of the same substance of God, and that's why we believe, you know, we can become like him in the sense that we enjoy everything he has, right? Or, or are there more? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We Ontologically, there isn't this divide. So, for instance, if you say, look, you're created, you came into existence at some first moment, and you're totally dependent. And if God didn't hold you in existence each moment, you would just poof out of existence the moment he didn't decide to keep you in existence. God, on the other hand, can't fail to exist. He exists of necessity. So we have two vastly different kinds of beings. We're in the chapter where we deal with the Latin Trinity. We're going to look at precisely how Nisaea tried to make this very same distinction by drawing Christ on the side of the uncreated Father. And I'm going to show that they just utterly failed in that. Balcom is just making the assertion. He doesn't even seem to recognize that there is a logical contradiction at the very core of what he's asserting. And this is the contradiction that kind of exists at the very core of traditional beliefs in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And that is, at least for Christians, Jews and, and, and Muslims don't have this problem. Christians do. 
they want to assert both that there is a unique being that's a single one of his kind uncreated. He's the only uncreated being and everything else is created. But there is something that is distinct from God, sufficiently distinct that he has his own will and cognitive capacities and essentially even his own history that's distinct from God. But somehow he's included in the one single being who's uncreated as well. And it's a fundamental problem at the very core of Christian beliefs. And I don't believe it's a problem that's ever really been solved. And it's to Joseph Smith's credit that the way he reoriented beliefs, he simply dissolved the logical problem. And he gave us a view of God that I believe is is much more sustainable and makes a lot more sense of the texts that we're looking at, because he's not adopting a form of strict metaphysical monotheism. He's adopting a view of a Most High God and other beings who can share fully in the glory of that Most High God and who have the same kind of ontological status as the Most High God because they're the same kind of being that God is. All right. Now, are, are there any particular strong arguments other than the, the ones that we've discussed from Baucom for strict monotheism in Second Temple Judaism, or, or have we pretty much tackled those? Yeah, no, the kinds of arguments that we get in the modern world are really metaphysical arguments that don't appear, of course, in the biblical texts. And the question is, really, do the biblical texts reflect this kind of monotheism that they have in mind, a metaphysical monotheism? And I'm arguing that the text won't support that view. They had a very different worldview than the worldview that is informing the kind of exegesis that Balcom wants to engage in. I'll go ahead and read this last quote you have there then. And that is, uh, the view that there were other divine beings who shared in the divine glory allowed the first Christians to see Jesus Christ as having been exalted by the one God to share fully in the same monarchical and divine status. Yeah, so what we're saying is that there wasn't any kind of ontological gulf that they had to deal with to make sense of Jesus being a fully divine being like the Father. That that wasn't a problem for them. And here's what, what I think traditional Christians really ought to reflect upon. They don't seem to recognize that there is any logical problem in seeing a second God at the right hand of God who shares fully in all of the divine glory and properties of the Father or that that somehow violates monotheism. It's just not something that really comes up for them. And so this kind of monotheism is never at issue in the New Testament because it's not an issue. All right. Uh, Is there anything else we want to address while we're talking about strict monotheism? I mean, I think we've done it in terms of Second Temple Judaism and, and the introduction. And remember, the whole purpose for bringing this up is that this is the worldview that informs the context of all the discussions that we find in the New Testament and the world into which Jesus Christ was born. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.